The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. It's Christmas time in the old city of Jerusalem. And in the Christian quarter, they're getting ready to proclaim the familiar story of Bethlehem and the arrival of Messiah. The Jewish and Muslim inhabitants of Jerusalem are curious and often fascinated by the Christmas symbols, both secular and religious. In fact, the observance has been given a very meaningful description in modern Hebrew. The Jews refer to Christmas as Hag HaMolad, meaning the holiday of the birth. Isn't that special? Well, as we approach the end of the year, I want to ask you to join us in helping to make the ministry and media of the Jerusalem Channel possible. 2017 is a very special time coming up. It'll mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the centenary of the Balfour Declaration that promised a homeland to the Jewish people. 2017 is also the 100th anniversary of when British and Allied forces recaptured the holy city of Jerusalem after 500 years of Muslim Turkish occupation. There are lots of interesting days ahead as we look for the second coming of Jesus. So please consider making an end of the year gift to the Jerusalem Channel. You can donate through our website at JerusalemChannel.tv. Just click the donate button and send a gift by credit or debit card. You can also send your donation by check in the USA, our mailing address is Box 2768, Stanton, Virginia, 24402. Gifts in the United States are tax deductible. And in the United Kingdom, we can usually claim gift aid through your donations posted to Box 109, Hereford, postcode HR49XR. Thank you for helping the Jerusalem Channel as we report prophetic events from the holy city in the year ahead. Why has Jesus been in heaven for nearly 2,000 years and will he be returning soon? When the apostle Peter preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, he explained that Jesus must remain in heaven until the times for the final restitution or restoration of all things as God promised long ago through His holy prophets. So just how and when will the restoration of all things be completed? Hello, I'm Christine Darg. When the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he explained the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to accompany every believer. And he said in Acts 3.21 that Jesus himself would remain in the heavens until the times of the restitution of all things prophesied by the prophets. I looked up this word restitution this week 
And the definitions give us many clues as to what God is in the process of doing. So I have four definitions here. Restru restitution means compensation for loss, damage, or injury caused. Secondly, it could mean the restoration of property or rights previously taken away or surrendered. Thirdly, restitution is restoration to the former or original state of something. And fourthly, it means the return to an original physical condition. The New Testament teaches that there are times of restoration and compensation coming concerning property rights, losses, and injuries as a result of people living in a fallen world and being dispossessed by the devil. Also, these are the times when the Jewish people are being restored back to their own land, whether the world likes it or not. And Jesus will remain in heaven until the times of the restitution or the restoration of all things. You see, the common belief of the Jews was that the Messiah would reign on this earth forever. And that's one of the reasons why they objected to Jesus being Messiah. It was important, therefore, for the apostles to establish the fact that Jesus had ascended to heaven. They were, after all, eyewitnesses. They saw the resurrected Jesus ascend to heaven. It was expedient that he should return to the Father to send the Holy Spirit and to direct the affairs of the universe. And he won't revisit this earth until the times of restitution or rectification of all the disorders and catastrophes that resulted throughout history since the fall of man. Jesus must be received in heaven until the times of restitution of all things. That's Acts 3.21. And it's one of a couple of far-reaching prophetic verses in this Bible that hinge upon one little word, until. For example, in Romans 11.25, the Apostle Paul said that a partial hardening and spiritual blindness had befallen the Jewish people, but he said this wouldn't be permanent. He said the judicial blindness would remain only until the full number of the Gentiles has been brought to belief in Messiah. And when the last Gentile from all of the nations is finally saved, then the veil will be lifted and all Israel shall be saved. Luke 21, 24 is another verse hinging upon the word until. Jesus prophesied in Luke 21, 24 that the Jewish people would be put to the sword and be led captive among all nations and that their capital city, Jerusalem, would be overrun by Gentiles, but only until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Restitution means the restoration of what's been broken, lost, or that's in a state of disrepair, as when the ruins of a house are rebuilt. And in our universe, in our world, there have been great upheavals. Bible prophecies speak of the restoration of Jerusalem and this land of Israel being rebuilt, of Israel being repopulated in the last days, of the land of Israel being 
reforestated and Israel's desert blossoming as a rose. And all of this is happening before our eyes. You see, God is in the ongoing process of overturning governments and powers to set up his rule under Messiah in Jerusalem. Before the second coming, the church must be restored to God's original intent. And even nature will be restored when Jesus returns. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he pronounced all of it good. But because of sin and disobedience, a curse fell upon creation. Peace and order were greatly disturbed. The first creation, under the first Adam, became cursed. But in the second creation, under the second Adam, theologians call Jesus the second Adam, there will be no more curse. The first creation devolved into thorns and thistles. But with the second advent, the Lord's second coming, and his thousand-year reign upon earth, Isaiah the prophet says that instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of briars shall come up myrtle trees, and all of this shall be to the Lord for praise and an everlasting sign. Now this restitution of all things will include a return to paradise, for then, the Bible says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The beginnings of the restoration of society started when Jesus began to build his church nearly 2,000 years ago. That was the beginning of putting down of sin and rebellion in men's hearts and giving us the opportunity for new hearts and a new born-again nature. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. It may look like there's chaos in the church world today, but the Lord's Prayer for Unity is still a work in progress. It's not the Lord's will that we should be divided and fractured. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.4, there is one body, in other words, there's only one church, Yet we see all around us a great deal of religious confusion and division among so many different churches and denominations. Even in Paul's day, the division had started. Some of the believers said that they were followers of Paul. Others said that they were followers of a preacher named Apollos, when in fact all of them should have considered themselves as followers of Jesus. Paul explained the sin of sectarianism in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm going to read to you verses 10 to 13. He said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, that... There are some among you who have contentions. Now I say this, that each of you says, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, that means Peter, 
or I'm of Christ. But Paul asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We really shouldn't be surprised by the smorgasbord of different denominations because the Bible itself foretold of an apostasy, a great falling away. And Paul foretold it. In Acts 20, he warned the elders in Ephesus that wolves would creep into the flock from outside and that they would also appear from amongst themselves in order to draw disciples away from the Lord to themselves. Paul warned the church at Thessalonica that there would be a great falling away that would create conditions for the man of sin, the Antichrist, to gain control. And Paul prophesied in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 that in the last days some would depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and what he called doctrines of demons. Paul said these demonic doctrines would include forbidding people to marry and to abstain from eating meats. Based on that scripture alone, we should be wary of imposed celibacy or even imposed vegetarianism. But in case you're offended, I'm going to quote Paul's exact words in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, where Paul says, they will say it's wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. But he said God created those foods to be eaten with thanks by faithful people who know the truth. Paul prophesied that professing Christians will simply not be able to endure sound doctrine but instead they'll heap to themselves the kind of teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. They will reject the truth, turning aside to fables. Well, Paul wasn't the only one to foresee these days of apostasy. The apostle Peter warned of false teachers who he said would secretly introduce destructive heresies. And he said many will tragically follow the false teachers. And in the little one-chapter epistle, Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, Jude also warned of false teachers who, would, who, who had already slipped in unnoticed. Jude said they were ungodly people who perverted the grace of God into immorality, and thus they denied the Lord. In his first epistle, the apostle John also warned of Antichrist who had already come. And as Jesus himself warned, there will be throughout the history of the church false prophets and false Christs. In fact, before the canon of the New Testament was completed, the apostasy was already underway. But the original church model was autonomous. In fact, Acts 14.23 records that they appointed elders in every local church. And after praying and fasting, they commended them to the Lord. It was that simple. Peter exhorted the elders to shepherd the flock of God, serving as overseers, but not by compulsion, but willingly, and certainly not for dishonest gain. 
but the churches began to collect under one bishop, resulting in centralization of power and therefore giving over ruler to certain individuals. And this change made it much easier for error to spread when those in power began to trickle down false doctrines. Before long, the very errors foretold by Paul were being taught. And as he predicted in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You see, through gradual changes, the seeds of modern institutionalized churches were sown and they produced hierarchy, which brought a division between the priesthood and laymen. But nevertheless, the truth is, Jesus is the head of the church and the individual members are all his body. Many departed from this simplicity of the Lord's church, but Jesus' model is that his church would all be a royal priesthood, a priesthood of every believer, and no member should lord themselves over another. The clergy system introduced a special spiritual class with the accompanying temptation to pride and the potential of abuse of power. It also leads to passivity on the part of those who are by implication second-class citizens who occupy the church pews. There's no doubt that the true church, the Lord's living flock, continues because Jesus said that not even the gates of hell could prevail against it. In fact, Jesus said his church is a kingdom that cannot be destroyed and wherever there are faithful disciples, the church will exist. And throughout history, faithful disciples who clung to the very simplicity of the gospel were treated as heretics. Rulers in the historical churches often looked down with contempt upon the true disciples and called them heretics and persecuted them. But in every generation, the Lord knows those who have remained faithful and loyal because the Lord knows his own. Reformers like Martin Luther were persecuted, excommunicated, and some were executed. One generation may have truly been restored to the Lord's way, yet apostasy has a way of repeating itself, always resulting in even more sectarian denominations. There have been many calls for restoration to the New Testament pattern for the local church. Even Jesus lived simply as a Jew under the law of Moses. And we don't see sectarianism in his teaching. Jesus lived as a Jew under the Torah. And now today we believers are living under the law of Messiah. We are followers of the way. We are disciples of Jesus. So technically we're not Baptists, we're not Methodists, Lutherans, Pentecostals, and so forth. We're simply 
Bible believers, followers of the way, disciples of Jesus himself. You see, in his teaching, Jesus forbade titles like rabbi or father because he alone is head and master of his church. The concept of a professional clergy corrupted the church and was an imitation of worldly concepts of leadership and power. Jesus became a servant to his followers and set the example by taking a towel as a garment to wash the feet of his disciples. But not much time passed before clergymen began to adorn themselves as spiritual elite, wearing special robes and collars and so forth. While the Reformation removed some of the worst abuses of the clerical system, but to this day, a distinction has nevertheless survived between the clergy and the so-called laity. Yet we don't see any evidence of a distinction between clergy and laity in the New Testament. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The church leaders were ordinary men who humbly served the flock. They didn't accept any special status, nor did they dress differently. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish clergy, saw the courage of Peter and John, the Jewish rulers realized that Peter and John were merely ordinary, uneducated men, but they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And that's what distinguished the apostles. They had power because they had been with Jesus and Jesus was still with them by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the true church is a fellowship, a family, in which there are no classes of people. And the New Testament prescription for leadership in the local church is a body of ruling elders and deacons who submit to one another with no one person exalted into a superior position to another. When Jesus returns, the greatest of the restitutions will be the restoration of the Lord's, not only his church, but his physical presence. But what exactly am I talking about? The second coming of Jesus will be quite different from his first coming because the day will come when Acts 3.21 will be fulfilled. Jesus will no longer remain in heaven, but the times of restoration will come and he will return. In fact, the Lord's first and second comings to earth serve many differences and purposes. In his first coming, Jesus came to earth as a baby, symbolically placed in a feeding trough, a manger in Bethlehem, meaning house of bread. He fulfilled many messianic prophecies during his birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection. In his first coming, Jesus was the Lord's suffering servant as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53. His first coming was under the most humble of circumstances and Few people perceived what was happening. But at his second coming, all eyes will see him and Jesus will return as conquering king with the armies of heaven. At his first coming, he came to die to pay the penalty for the sins of the entire world for anybody and everybody who will receive the free gift of his atonement. 
He came to be the friend of sinners and the savior of sinners. And Jesus arrived in Jerusalem to make atonement according to the exact timeline revealed in the prophet Daniel chapter 9. And he entered meekly into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. When he came the first time as the suffering servant, he was rejected by his Jewish people because he didn't fit the picture of the conquering Messiah, the son of David as the ruling king. That's the way he'll appear at his second coming. So the Jews stumbled upon his first coming and forfeited at that time all of the things that pertain to their peace. But at the second coming of Jesus, they will summons him and he will appear as King of Kings and Lord of Lords as Israel's conquering warrior, the true son of David. And when he returns, this time it won't be on a humble donkey, but he'll be riding on a royal white horse. And then he'll be received by the Jewish people as King Messiah. So while the first coming of Jesus was as a servant to serve and teach, his second arrival will be to rule over the whole earth. And that's why we need to be prepared now and be ready for that soon coming event. At his first advent, Jesus shared the common lot of everyone. He knew hunger. He saw poverty and disease. The only difference is that he knew no sin. That's the unique distinction which qualified Jesus alone to take the consequences of a sinful world and receive the punishment of death as a sacrifice once for all to bear the sins of many. His great aim was to take away sin and conquer the power of death. His first coming was connected with sin. That's why Jesus was lifted up on the cross to draw sinners to himself. And Hebrews 9.28 says that Messiah was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When he appears, he will be proven innocent of the guilt that was wrongly charged upon him while he stood in the place of sinful man on the tree on the cross. And it's so interesting to me that presently there's already a movement within the nation of Israel among certain Orthodox rabbis to prove that Jesus was in fact sinless and guiltless. One of these rabbis is planning to hold a trial to exonerate Jesus and to bring him back to the Jewish people. So we live in momentous days right before the second coming of Jesus. And that's why it's so shocking to me that many professing Christians aren't even anticipating with joy and excitement the imminent second coming of Jesus. Their lackadaisical attitude runs contrary to this word of God. The Apostle Paul taught believers to love the doctrine of the second coming and to ardently desire the Lord's appearing. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. 
But not only to me, Paul said, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Well, I want that crown, don't you? We certainly cannot earn our salvation because Jesus is the only one who could procure that for us by his work on the cross. But we can surely earn rewards for our faithful service. And the crown for loving his appearing is surely the easiest crown of all the crowns to obtain. The Bible also mentions other crowns, including the martyr's crown and also the soul winner's crown. But the one that is given for loving his appearance is so easy to receive. But it's very, very urgent that you make a decision concerning your soul's future. If you don't receive Jesus as your Savior, someday you must face him as your judge. And in this ministry, we want to be sure that you have responded to the Lord's message of salvation. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter urged the people, Be saved from this corrupt generation, he cried. How can we be saved from our corrupt generation? Well, the method is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. The Bible promises in Romans 10, 9, that if you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen. I thank God for touching you right now with the gospel of repentance and forgiveness freely offered in the name of Jesus, no matter what is your ethnic or religious background. Jesus died for everybody everywhere. And he also paid the penalty through his vicarious sufferings for all of our sicknesses and disease. That's why healing is part and parcel of the good news of Jesus, our Messiah. By his stripes, we were healed. Well, we'd like to continue to encourage you with hope and good news through our social media. And also, you can visit our website at exploits.tv to watch any of our videos at any time on a wide range of topics, including healing and Bible prophecy. You can also click online to receive our free ministry newsletter, Exploits. The name of our magazine is inspired by Daniel 11.32, which says that the people who know God will be strong, not weak, and will carry out exploits, the works of the Lord. And so until next time, always earnestly contending for the faith and praying for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom.